Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. I am one of your hosts, Ms. Mama. I'm your other host, Mr. Craigers. Yes, he is. And tonight on our 97th episode, we're getting up there. Well past Oxygenarian into Centurion? Is that it? Centenarian. Centenarian. It was like Centurion, like the Roman soldiers. No. Uh, getting up there. But <clears throat> tonight we're going to be talking about, um, well, we've kind of got a new sort of episode uh, format for you yeah. uh, that we are calling Scarier Than Fiction, um, where we will detail the true uh horror stories behind some horror films and you know we're not talking the ones we all know like amityville and that sort of thing we're kind of diving into more of the cult favorites that have a true story background and we're starting that with if you could not glean from the title of the episode uh 2008 the strangers spooky Okay, but before we do that, we have a special guest with us tonight to uh, share some of his own spooky thoughts and spooky writings. Yeah, Hi. I'd like to welcome back to Splatter Chatter, uh, horror author James Dermott. Yeah, thank you. Cool. Good to be here. Yeah. So, James, you first joined us a while back to promote your... Um, Volume, volume two. two? Volume two. Yeah, I was going to say, when you right. sent us this, I was like, oh, volume four. Yeah, right? your second volume of Doors from the Unseen, and now we're on the fourth volume, which yeah, right. is the final volume, correct? No, it's going to be 12 volumes. Oh, my God. So, wow. Yeah, so it'll be two volumes. I was uh, way off. <laughs> two, two volumes each year. Um, it'll be a volume in April and October, which is the original kind of schedule that I planned, but, um, you know, it was more difficult to release volumes that were complete to my satisfaction on the schedule I wanted, but now I can, you know, with enough practice, I was able to do it. So um, now it'll be an April, October release schedule until I reach volume 12. And then I'm going to release a, uh, all 12 volumes in a combined like hardcover set at the very end of that year. That's cool. So, so that'll take you to what, like 2020? I think, let, let me figure it out. So uh, it's vo- <laughs> volume four and five is 2022, six and seven, 23, uh, eight and nine, 24, um, 10 and 11 is 25. So in 2026, assuming I'm not dead, uh, they'll get volume 12 in April, 2026. And then for Halloween, you know, October uh, 2026. Um, it'll be like a it'll be like a three volume hardcover set that I'll release. Yeah. So, all right, you heard it here first, kids. Maybe not. Maybe you've talked about this. Yeah, time. I have talked about it somewhere else. <laughs> so you heard it here nice and well for Halloween 2026. Yeah. That'll be cool. Yeah. So, and then I'm thinking about doing the audio book, uh, but it'll be expensive to do it. They say that you could just read it yourself, but um, I don't know if I want to do that or not. Yeah. That's something that I can figure out down the road. But yeah. right now I'm, I'm focusing on getting six good stories into a volume and getting it out every April and October, which I'm able to do now. Yeah. And that's a lot of work, I'm sure. It is. I mean, the, the stories are, you know, I put a lot of effort into writing them and they're all carefully researched. You know, volume four has uh, stories. Um, the third story, which is, um, I don't know if you remember uh, The Great Black Beast from Volume 2, mm-hmm. yeah, the werewolf story. So there was a prequel story in Volume 3 called Cast in Amber that took place in ancient Rome. And then oh, okay. uh, then in Volume 4, uh, the, it's the 
uh, the last part of the trilogy, uh, which wraps up the story of the silver pendant. And um, it talks, uh, it takes place in uh, late Victorian London, England. So Ooh. I had to research that. Frank does love his werewolf stories. So. I do love a good werewolf story. <laughs> yeah, so it's a trilogy of three werewolf stories. So if you, you do have volume two, if you want to get volume three, and um, and volume four, when it comes out, you can read all three were werewolf stories. It starts. It uses the in media res technique, where you get the mm. story in medieval Germany. It's it starts, but that's the middle of the story, and then you find out where the silver pendant comes from in ancient Rome, and then uh, the last part of the story takes. You know, the silver pendant ends up in London, England, in 1901. That sounds really cool. Yeah. Awesome. So, and then there, there's a, a kind of a science fiction horror story in volume four uh, that takes place on Mars. And mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, I, I do love sci-fi. I, I, I think sci-fi is territory. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's about life on Mars. We'll put mm -hmm. it that way. So uh, without giving too much away, and it takes place in the future. You know, not not the far mm -hmm. future, but like uh, this century, late late yeah. this century. Nice. nice. So the thing is, I put a lot of detail into the stories, like how do you keep uh, track of time and you know, days and periods of time passing on Mars? And that's something mm -hmm. that is uh, not, you know, really settled, you know, because yeah. there really is no Martian calendar right now. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I remember in like the Martian, they called them souls or because. Yeah, well, yeah, a, a day yeah. is a soul yeah. and it's a little longer than a regular mm -hmm. day on yeah. earth but the thing is mars is there's no months that, on mars. yeah well they don't really they, they have probably it would be 24 months but they don't use months mm -hmm. and um their i think their cycle around the sun is 663 earth days okay. so uh martian year is a little different interesting and um you know the, the the idea is to measure it in terms of um the latitude of the of mars and its position towards the sun and uh, I had to figure out the, like the, the dates for that. It's not a settled thing. Like even uh, yeah. the scientific community doesn't know exactly how they're going to keep track of Martian days. It's going to be real interesting. Yeah. So yeah, but I put a lot of detail in the stories, and it takes some research. So. Yeah, it sounds like it. Sounds worth it. Um, we're going to talk to you about some of the research and some of the work you put into one particular story from Volume Four. But first, we're going to do our horror headlines, read, watch, listen, check in. Miss Mel, do you want to start us off? Do you have anything you want to make a headline for folks? Yeah. Um. I was trying. I was thinking. I was like, what did I? What have I mentioned? Or th versus what have I thought I mentioned? Um, like constant struggle. Yeah. Um. I, I, I will say the biggest thing, and this is more horror adjacent just because it kind of gets the sort of thriller lens and it's kind of a more of a thriller tone, but there are some definite horror vibes to it is uh, Severance, um, which especially in the early episodes, um, very, very creepy, very, very um, tense. And it's based in part on the, the creepypasta, the sort of internet um, it was a little bit of a creepypasta, a little bit of just sort of like a shared internet, um, you know, in environment or motif of the back doors. Uh, a few people have made um, short videos about it, written creepypastas about it, but it's basically this idea of like a never ending blank office hallway um, that was very, uh, influential in in the creation of the sets in that show um 
I didn't know it drew from that. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's one of those things where when something's really popular and prestige, it gets called a thriller or a psychological thriller or psychological right. drama. Um, but I think there are parts of Severance that are definitely very horror centric. Um, and I have been completely just eating all that up for the past few weeks. And now it's over for the season. So I guess I got to move on. But they did they already give it a second season? Yeah. 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 So they bet which they better be filming right now because... <laughs> I have questions you need it. yeah yeah i hadn't heard of that until just now so i just looked mm-hmm. it up yeah. it says it's a psychological um science fiction thriller series yes yeah there you yeah. go so would Very- highly recommend and go in knowing as little as possible i think i'm gonna start it tonight it's been on my radar for a while and i'm like now is the time to dive in before i like start seeing and hearing things that like mm-hmm. will be spoilers you know yeah so very cool. cool. Yeah, thank you. Uh, James, have you seen anything lately that you want to give a shout uh, out to or read anything? Or? Yeah, I mean, I've been so busy making sure that this gets done <laughs> because of the, yeah. the the delay, you know, well, not really long delays, but the delays for volumes two and three that um, I've, I've only watched a creep show season three on Shudder. Mm-hmm. And that was that was really good. That was better than season two. And uh, one episode stood out that was uh, called Meter Reader. It was about like this post-apocalyptic demon slayers and they're called the meter readers. And, and the, have you guys seen the uh, no, season I three? I haven't seen season three. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. But um, the, the demons in it are very much like the evil dead demons. They're almost identical. Okay. Mm. So it's clearly inspired by uh, the evil dead series. And um, you know, it's, it's a combination of like the, the world has been overrun by these demons and society is falling apart. And then the, the meter readers are the ones that, uh, that fight the demons to try to end the apocalypse. That sounds pretty great. Yeah. yeah that, that was a really good episode. And, uh, there, yeah, but the other, other episodes in the, in the, uh, season three were good, but that was the one that stood out. I think I watched like the first episode when season three first started. And then for some reason, like got distracted and didn't catch up, but now I want to get back so I can see this episode in particular. Yeah, I would, I would definitely uh, watch season three. It's worth it. Season two wasn't, you know, it's kind of a letdown compared to season one, but uh, season three kind of brought the series back up and, you know, uh, kind of reclaim some of the quality that was in season three or season one. Good. And do we know, do we know if they're doing a season four? Yeah, almost definitely. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they are. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they are. Nice. Um, I have to, what have I been doing? Oh, I mentioned to you, Mel, before we recorded that I finally saw The Night House, mm-hmm. which is on HBO Max now for folks that are interested. Um, pretty good. I think all of the hype from last year harmed my particular viewing of it because I was expecting to be really blown away. Mm-hmm. Whereas I was just like, oh, this is very solid, but it's not necessarily like God tier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a good movie. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, and Rebecca Rebecca Hall was phenomenal. She gave an incredible performance. Um, it's a shame that horror gets overlooked so much when it comes to things like that. Listen, I will never get over Tony Collette not getting. I know a thing for uh, for hereditary. 
Yeah. Hereditary was really good. I mean, it was close to God tier, I think, yeah. in terms of uh, how, especially for a mainstream movie. You know, yeah. that I've, I've still only seen it once because it just it was <laughs> yeah. that affecting. I really can't go back <laughs> watch it again. Well, there's so much detail in it that uh, you have to watch it again to catch everything. I know. You know there's I so many Easter eggs like, and subtle videos. things going on. Yeah, I watch people's like videos of it where they tell me the things they've spotted. <laughs> That's all you can <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, so that was good. And um, I also finally got a chance to see St. Maud. Oh, okay. I'd be Another interested one. to hear your thoughts about that because I had thoughts. Um, I feel like I had very similar thoughts where I was expecting a lot because right, and it was very sort of understated, not understated, that's not the term. It's like I don't know, it was just very hyped, and I felt that it was fine, it was really good, it just it yeah. was mind blowing. Yeah, um, I think like kind of the same thing, it was well done, it was well made, very well acted, but I was like, what's the like wow factor here? And it yeah. didn't quite come for me. Yeah. Saint Maud. Yeah. That's, okay. I think it was supposed to come out right around when the pandemic started, so they think so. Paused it for a year, and then it came out on demand somewhere. Somewhere, and then they like pulled it for a bit because I think they were going to try and do like a small festival thing, maybe, and then. I think it does think suck that it got, that. you know, kind of like, you know, like just its schedule and release got so messed up, but it, it you know, cause it wasn't, it's a really solid movie. It just, it wasn't. Yeah. Know. And again, another like amazing lead performance from um, the lead actress, uh, Morphe Clark. Mm-hmm. Like I could have watched her all day, but. Yeah. yeah I'm looking at the internet movie database uh, entry for it right now. I have seen this before. You know, but I have never, I, I've heard of it and, you know, seen mm-hmm. um, like uh, probably the trailer for it, but yeah. I don't, uh, I haven't watched it. Yeah, it's definitely worth a watch. Just, you know, it's no hereditary, I guess. Yeah. Okay, it's not hereditary, <laughs> but it's about uh, religious fanaticism. Yeah, yeah. in a way. Um, right. <laughs> it's It's one person's interpretation, I guess, of her own of to her what is religious uh devotion yeah that's um, a good way to put it yeah so yeah all right so um as we mentioned we've got james here with us today to talk about um his new horror short story collection which is doorways to the unseen volume four um and james you were kind enough to send us over one particular story which is fear of the dark um, so we're going to poke your brain a little bit about that story. Um, and maybe you could start with telling us basic, simple, where'd you get the idea for this one? It's about the boogeyman, <laughs> you know, that, that's all that's, it's, but it takes all the, um, kind of tropes and legends of the boogeyman and puts them into a, a story, you know, that, as the related to this family. And it's not just the boogeyman, it's like the German version of the boogeyman. Yeah, I was going to ask you yeah, about the Der, Der Schwar, I can't. Der Schwarzmann. Thank you. Der Schwarzmann. Yeah. So uh, it's like the shadow man. Or, okay. You know, or something like that. But that's what, it's the, the, the equivalent of the boogeyman in German culture and German folklore. Okay. Were you, so, were you researching that particular version of the boogeyman, the German yeah, I mean, I just didn't want to make it about the boogeyman again, because I like to add a lot of detail and historical context to stories. You know, I decided to do it about, 
you know, there, there are different versions of the boogeyman, like uh, there's a Latin American version and, you know, like the, the, there's in Eastern Europe, they have the, you know, something like the boogeyman and um, in Germany, it's, it's this, and it, they're, you know, German uh, children's, uh, children's literature and, and songs and things like that tend to be really cruel and sadistic, or at least they, they weren't in until recent times, you know, so if you go back and look at like 18th and 19th century uh, German, you know, like uh, Krumpus, I think comes from mm -hmm. Germany, right? Yeah. Yeah, so they, they had a lot of, they have a lot of imagery of children being, you know, tortured and, you know, kidnapped and things like that. So um, this uh, Der Schwarzmann shows up in a lot of their like nursery rhymes and playground songs and things like Interesting. that. Interesting. Yeah, they are. I mean, I looked them up and found the translations and they're pretty, they're pretty harsh stuff. So German's it's not, it. it's more of like, it, that was more of the past of Germany, not today, but. It's uh, it was very dark. It was a very dark and cold place. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was brutal. Uh, speaking of dark, uh, your main character in the story, Susan, uh, suffers from pretty severe nyctophobia. Um, is that something you were drawing on, like, real life from? Do you also share that phobia? Do I have a fear of the dark? I mean, I had <laughs> I had mild nyctophobia as a child, so, okay. you know, I was scared of the dark, like, probably both of you were, too. So. <laughs> I, mean, a lot, a lot I, had, I had a nightlight. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I had a nightlight, too, so... Um, yeah, I mean, I had, but I never had it like, she has a literal phobia where she has panic attacks and mm -hmm. things like that. So I just didn't like being in the dark. You know, I had trouble falling asleep and I get scared. And uh, you never saw something coming out of the closet that shouldn't have been in there? Um, well, I mean, well, the, the thing is, there was this really strange. There was this cold spot in my closet, my bedroom, mm -hmm. and it really was there. You could put your hand there and it was really cold. It was really strange. Ooh. And my mom claimed the house was haunted. <gasps> She just, you didn't even sugar. She was like, yeah, it's on it. Well, this, is, this is a long story. I'll tell you about it. If I come back for another appearance, I'll tell you the whole story of the haunted house I grew up in. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, um, I, yeah, I mean, it draws on my own experience, but I never had a, like a literal phobia or had to go into therapy. She has like cri a crippling fear of the dark mm -hmm. to the point where uh, yeah. she can't function. Yeah. And she has to go see therapist for it she ends up taking medication during the story for it so it's quite severe um, yeah well the thing is you find out as the story goes on that she really has a real reason to have this right terrific fear of the dark yeah there's that irony there that if there's any reason to be afraid of the dark then <laughs> what it is well, I can read a segment. I mean, do you want to ask me some questions about the story or do you want me to uh, read a segment from it? We'd love to hear you read yeah. something. Okay. All right. So this kind of starts somewhere around the middle. Um, you know, they, the, you hear, hear the first story from Peter, her older brother, who tells her about, you know, this story back in Germany. I never say it's Germany, but it's uh, her great granddad and the, mm -hmm. the rat story. So then he starts out you know, this other Zoom call with her, like we're having right now. Uh, she has a, he starts telling her another story. He says, there's something I wanted to mention too. Dad told us another story about great granddad, one even scarier than the one about the roasted rats. Peter watched Susan through his webcam as, as if assessing her. And you're going to tell me this one, whether I want to hear it or not. Susan looked away from her webcam and turned to the open door behind her. The hallway light 
uh, still on. Restless for a moment, Peter shifted in his seat and continued speaking. The story came back to me after I told you the rat story. It's funny, I hadn't thought of it in so long, which is strange as it's out there to say the least. Would you like to hear it? So what is it? Was great granddad still back in the old country when this happened, whatever it is? Susan was intrigued now, even as she felt Peter was subtly probing her, her his reasons unclear. Dad told us after eating the rats, things didn't get much better for great granddad Carl. Uh, food stayed scarce and else had to put some of her kids in the orphanage, even though she was still caring for the rest of her children. As he was the oldest boy in the family, great granddad was placed with the youngest sibling so he could keep them safe. The orphanage was packed with children who had lost both parents during the war and other kids whose families couldn't feed them. The nuns had converted spare rooms into sleeping quarters with the kids more or less piled on top of one another. The first night there, uh, great granddad was put into a room with his brothers and sisters and about a dozen other children. All of them slept on cots along the bare floor. The room was previously a bedroom for staff unused for years, but now appropriated for the orphans. Uh, great granddad said a nun put them down to bed after saying their prayers and then took the only light in the room, a candle in its holder with her as she left for the night. Candles were in short supply as was everything else. The bedroom closet door had been left open by the nuns when cleaning out the place so it could be used as a makeshift dorm. Great granddad's cot was next to the open door or open closet. Uh, the room was almost entirely dark, but he still couldn't sleep. He was so hungry it kept him awake, even after having been fed along, uh, fed dinner along with the other children. A clock chimed midnight in the distance and great granddad heard a creaking sound as the closet door was pushed from the inside. Great granddad then swore to dad that he saw a horrible thing emerge from that closet close to him, but passing him by. It resembled a man, but very bent and crooked, too tall and too thin to be a human being. The thing shambled forward, treading toward among the slumbering children, and then stopped near the cot of a little girl who had been left all by herself at the orphanage. The thing scooped up the sleeping child and bundled her into a sack it carried, silently making its way back across the room. Great granddad wanted to scream, but he held it in, knowing what the monster might do if it hurt him. He closed his eyes, barely being able to see in the room anyway, and not wanting the thing to catch him spying on it. He said he could then feel the thing come toward the closet, but hesitate as if it might be, have paused to look down at him. The closet door creaked shut, but great granddad didn't dare open his eyes until he could feel the morning light on them. Susan breathed out, having held her breath near the story's end. Peter, why did you tell me a story like that? You know, the last thing I need to hear is a spook tale about dark closets and child snatching. Peter smiled slightly and then peered into his webcam. I just want you to know that great granddad also had a terrible fear of the dark. Maybe it runs in our family. So that's the second no, story. Maybe you should consider doing that audiobook. book. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, thank you. I mean, I, I don't think my delivery though is, especially if it's, it's the same voice over and over again for 72 <laughs> different stories. You know, so you can do fun voices for the characters. Yeah, I, I wouldn't try to do that. I, I, <laughs> it's expensive, but I'd try to hire uh, somebody mm -hmm. with voice acting experience. But yeah, it's something that I'll look into. But uh, the thing is, did, did you understand um, what is kind of, I don't really say it directly, but what is implied about uh, Susan's family? I think so, towards the end. Um, 
but I don't want to, I want to talk too specifically to, to give it away, but there's some sort of, um, in the climax memories that seem to be popping up or, um, you know, uh, scenes that seem to be, you know, almost deja vu-esque, I guess, for her. Right. Yeah. Did we get yeah, it? I mean, it, it, it's not just a straightforward story where, you know, she's being stalked by the boogeyman, even mm -hmm. though that's what's happening. Something else is happening in the background. It's layered. Yeah, yeah it's a very layered story. But I don't, I don't think a lot of people would get it. Do you, uh, did you read Creepy Jane? Do you remember that from volume three? Yeah, I think that it was... One I of the main ones you sent. Us, yeah, right? I think that was one of the main ones we talked about. Um, well, that was in that's no, we, we only had an interview for volume two. I sent you the link though for two. volume for creepy oh, James, yeah, volume yeah. three. But you yeah. sent it to us. Yeah. yeah, it was a Bloody Mary type story. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. So that a lot of people didn't understand what was going on with that. And I think by the end of it, it was clear what was happening, but still mm -hmm. like a number of people didn't catch the the twist in the story. Best horror is uh, horror that's not about the the sort of thing on the page. I feel like the thing on the screen. Um, yeah, you know, I always like when the boogeyman, for example, um, you know, represents you know something else going on in someone's psyche or someone's past or that sort of thing. Um, and that's what makes it so spooky. I feel. Yeah, yeah. There was a particularly good figure you chose to be the, okay. you know yeah. the enemy of this story yeah. thank you <laughs> yeah i just wanted to do the, the thing is creepy jane was about like the bloody mary uh urban legends mm -hmm. and this is more about like folk stories mm -hmm. so i picked the boogeyman as being one of the most popular folk stories that shows up pretty much everywhere there's a there's yeah. a version of the boogeyman in most countries i think from what i could tell makes you wonder if there's you know if the boogeyman's There's real boogeyman. or not. Yeah, if there really is a boogeyman <laughs> yeah just throwing it out there we're just putting it out there could be a possibility yeah. so yeah so readers will be able to find uh fear of the dark in volume four um and where can they find volume four in general when will that be available? it'll be on amazon and then other platforms uh after that on amazon at the end of this month and then on other platforms uh released within the next month after okay. that so Excellent. end of as of recording this podcast by the end of april yeah it'll be out yeah. by april 30th at the latest awesome. great so. and is there anything um can you give us a tease of what to expect in volume five like have you started working okay. on it yeah story? volume five i have to already because i learned my lesson and you know <laughs> uh, have started writing oh i mean i always had like uh you know summaries and outlines of stories but uh, volume five you know i've started writing it already so um one story one potential story uh is another science fiction story about vampires okay. and then um i'm not decided if I was, it's going to make it or not into the uh the volume and then uh i have another story about uh like i'll say it's about body transference that Ooh. uh somebody switches switches bodies with someone else and doesn't quite realize what's happened. Mm. <laughs> right. Both those sound exciting. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing is I I why I start writing the stories and then I decide well do all these all all these stories go well together. Right. 
Yeah. You know, and then sometimes stories drop off and then I add another story that I have outlined or I have just a summary of. Yeah. Yeah. They all got to fit, you know. Yeah. They all got to fit in. So you don't want too much overlap. Like um, volume three had two stories that were about historical Italy back to back, but I thought it really fit well together. Mm -hmm. It went story number two and story number three were both about historical Italy, but one flowed well into the other one. So I put them both in there. Yeah, you got to go with what feels right. Yeah, well, I mean, once you, well, I mean, the thing is, it has to be about different parts of the horror genre too. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I make sure that there's one ghost story in each volume, no matter what. Nice. nice. <laughs> well, right. Lots to look forward to in both volume four, which will be out by the end of this month, and volume five, which we can hopefully expect in October, right? Yeah, October this year. Yeah, and I will be able to stick to it because I've already started writing. It. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And folks will be able to find that on Amazon at the end of yeah. the month. And um, and then Barnes and Nobles and Kobo and, uh, and other platforms uh, after that. And where can they find you if they want to connect with you? You just go to James Derman, J-E-M-E-S-D-E-R-M-O-N-D.com. And uh, all of my, you know, like uh, social media links are there. You can check out my Amazon page and uh, go to my Goodreads page and so on. Excellent. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us again, James, and chatting with us and getting us excited for Volume <laughs> 4 of Doorways of the Unseen. We really appreciate it. Okay. I appreciate being back on the show. It was great. Yeah. No yeah. Hopefully we can get you back for uh, Volume 5. We okay, can hear sure. about the, the, the spooky house you grew up in. I know. Yeah, I, will tell, I, I will tell the full story if you want to block out time for that. I will tell the full story of the haunted house I grew up in. All right. That might be good for October. That could be good. I know. Keep your schedule open. All right. Okay, thanks. Yeah, no problem. Have a good one. All right. Fun, fun stuff. Very. Thank you once again to James Derman for joining us. Mm-hmm. Um, very much looking forward to the complete volume four and volume five later this year. So I think now we'll move into the main discussion of our episode, um, which as Ms. Mel mentioned, uh, is a new type of episode we're calling <coughs> Scarier Than Fiction. You're on the, the title. <laughs> it's not COVID. Or you could have just said the cough was part of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One time when I was in high school, I um, had to give a a speech. I was going to say I had to give an oral speech. Of course, it was an oral speech. I had to give a speech for a speech comm class, and I was doing an informative speech on Pennhurst, and I had lost my voice, and I literally came in just to give that speech, and then went home because I didn't want to like have to you know rev up all over again. Yeah. So I'm giving this speech about Pennhurst, and I'm like. <laughs> it was founded on that and it was like so creepy <laughs> so it was perfect and then yeah. and then you dipped and no one saw yeah. you for the rest of the day yeah so i just left school better. after that because i was like i should probably not be in school because i'm sick but i didn't i wanted to uh give that speech so we're gonna call that a penhurst exit from now on <laughs> yeah. i got a 99 on the i forget why i got the one percent off but one of the notes i got back was somebody being like it sounded so cool because you were dying <laughs> yeah you were on theme yeah and we love a theme we love a theme like the theme of this episode tonight 
which is scarier than fiction. Scarier than fiction. <laughs> yeah. So normally when we cover a film, we kind of give some background and context first, and then we talk about the film. This time we're going to flip it a little bit. We're going to tell you about the film, and then we're going to give you um, the real life story um, behind this movie and the things that it was claimed to be inspired by. Um, and as Ms. Mouse said, we're starting off this new kind of episode with 2008's The Strangers. <laughs> if Mel doesn't die. <laughs> Sorry. During the course of our discussion. So yeah. let's give her a little bit of a break and take a listen to the trailer. I just want to tell you something. What do you want to tell me? You are my girl. I love you, Jimmy. What is that? It's okay, there's nothing here. I haven't heard a dog bark or a car pass. Nothing. Okay, so if you're able to, yeah. Mel, will, you, will you please tell us, um, when did you first see The Strangers and what were your impressions? So I was thinking about this because, as I know, this is always how we start the conversation. And this came out when I was either, what, what time? It came out in May. April? May. Oh, it's April. I'm looking at the date now. It came April. It came out April 11th. No, it didn't. That's <laughs> came out in May. So it would have been my senior year, the end of my, or not my senior year. Oh my God. My freshman year of high school <clears throat> would have been the end of my freshman year of high school. And I feel like I remember people talking about it and like, it's one of those things where I cannot remember the first time I sat down to watch it in full. I just mm -hmm. remember you know, having seen it and knowing what it is. And I think it's because I saw pieces of it so much at like parties and like sleepovers and that sort of thing um, that I can't remember the first time I fully sat down and watched it like front to back. Um, 
you know, I'm sure I did at some point later in high school um, or in college, but I remember it being kind of like a thing in, in high school when it came out. Um, just, you know, people would sort of talk about like, oh yeah, like, isn't that movie so crazy? Or based on, you know, because it has that whole beginning section of, you know, very much like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, right. following about sort of based on a true story and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, but what about you? Um, I saw it in theaters mm-hmm. when it came out. Um, that was the end of my junior year of high school. Um, I don't remember who I saw it with or the context. I maybe I saw it alone. Who knows? Um, or I dragged someone who <laughs> doesn't like horror movies to see it with me. And Megan? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> highly possible. I've done that to her several times. Um, and I re- I was terrified of that movie mm-hmm. uh, it still scares me listen i told you i i was house sitting for my mother this past yeah. week and i was like i'm not watching the strangers while i'm at this house in the suburbs by myself with me and just the cat i just see you like just even thinking about the possibility and then like turning all the lights on i fully <laughs> i went to bed every night with the kitchen light a little bit on yeah. So that the outside world could see there was a light on. And I closed every blind that could be closed anywhere, except for the one that, you know, I left the one in the kitchen a little bit open so people could see bit. the light. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't mess with that stuff. I don't know why. Like there's knock on wood. I mean, there's never been a break-in that I know of in her neighborhood or anywhere really around there. And we'll get into some of the specifics on break-ins and burglaries and that sort of thing later but there's just something about being out there where it's quiet and you know you feel like you're the like by the third day I was like man like this could like the world could end and I would have no idea it would take you a minute to realize Yeah. yeah yeah I mean yeah I remember like going home that night after seeing it in the theaters and being like very paranoid. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I grew up in the suburbs. Um, my house was not quite as isolated as the house mm-hmm. from the film, Yeah. but it, you know, and it was a very safe neighborhood, um, but it was still sort of just like, yeah, but what if, what if? This is something I'm also gonna be thinking about when we, um, you know, not every summer, but there are many summers where, uh, you know, my girlfriend and I will go to their their vacation home in very rural part of Maine, which is basically what this house is. In yeah, the, in the in the movie, and it's just like I don't know. Yeah, um, I've I'm sure I've mentioned this on the show before, and of course I've talked about it with you. Two Halloween's back, right, I spent right. it at a cabin in the woods mm-hmm. um, with my cousin and a couple other folks, and it was a and it was a. It was a very nice, like... It was one of the bougie cabins. Yeah, it was a bougie cabin, because I don't go to the woods unless it's a bougie cabin. But, um, you know, because it was Halloween, obviously we were watching scary movies, but I remember this one moment where, like, the strangers was floated as a possibility and then, like, immediately discounted. Like, we were no, like, no, no. we're not going to do that to ourselves because everybody, not that everyone was, like being unnecessarily like paranoid but everyone's I'm trying to have like, fun exactly <laughs> yeah and everyone was like we are in the middle of the woods in West Virginia so yeah. we're yeah. not gonna uh, freak ourselves out there's a there's a line between scary fun and like 
don't know, man. <laughs> right. We all still wanted to go to bed at night. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and I totally remember sitting in the theater and when that, you know, Texas Chainsaw style opening happens with that voice, I was just like, I remember getting chills. Yeah. Because I don't know, I don't remember how much they promoted that it was inspired by true events. In That's the something that it. <clears throat> I feel like I remember that being a big part of it, but I'm also like, am I retroactively putting that on there? Yeah, I can't differentiate. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that really like sucked me in, but yeah, it freaked me out then, freaks me out now. Yeah, for sure. So uh, The Strangers was the debut film of writer-director Brian Bertino, um, who has since gone on to do uh, a couple of other films, three more films, I believe. He directed uh, a feature called Mockingbird in 2014, a movie called The Monster in 2016, which um, almost made me cry. And then a movie from 2020 um, that was, actually, I think that was my favorite film of the year, The Dark and the Wicked. I, yeah. Or it was in my top five, for sure. I can't remember where it fell on the, the list that year. Yeah. When we did, did our list. 2020, yeah. Um, so, yeah, but this, this was his first. And um, he originally titled the screenplay The Faces. Um, decently creepy title. Mm-hmm. I think it would have still worked if that they had yeah. kept that. Um, and... Bertino sort of has that classic horror director journey. You know, he grew up watching a lot of 70s horror um, and he's talked about that, you know, when he was working on this, he wanted to craft a story that really put the audience in the world of the victims. And that was his goal here. Um, And when asked about sort of like, well, what were your influences or like, what are the true events that the strangers is based on, you know, according to its marketing, he has talked about um, the big things in his mind being looking back on a series of um, break-ins and home invasions that took place in his neighborhood when he was a child um, and his experience reading Helter Skelter, uh, the famous controversial true crime book. There's something about that generation and Helter Skelter it messed them up big time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my those words, Helter Skelter, like freaked my mom out. No, my mom, like, it's the like, and it's like, I get it. It's understandable. That was crazy what happened, but it truly, like, there's something about that generation and that whole thing where it's like, <clears throat> so, yeah. Yeah. So Bertino actually has a, a decent quote from an interview where he said, I was thinking about the Tate murders and realizing that these detailed descriptions had painted a story of what it was like in the house with the victims. But none of the victims knew about the Manson family or why it was happening to them. So I got really fascinated with telling the victim's tale and not filling it in with an FBI profile and not filling it in with finding out that somebody's grandmother beat them and now they want to kill everybody. You read obituaries every day where someone is killed for a random reason. Yes, we may eventually find out why, but sometimes we don't. So that was on his mind when he was drafting this story. And I think that comes through uh, very well. So um, those are the main influences that he has cited, but a lot of viewers and journalists have also noted similarities to the 2006 French uh, horror home invasion film, Them, which is very good, highly recommend. Um, as well as the real-life 1981 Keddie Cabin Murders, which we will be detailing later. 
Um, after he was finished and had retitled uh, his screenplay to The Strangers, Bertino entered uh, his script into a screenwriting contest where it got enough attention that he was eventually able to sell it to Universal Pictures. Um, and then they set about putting the film in production and casting it. Bertino was specifically interested in Liv Tyler for the role of Kristen, um, but Tandy Newton and Charlize Theron also expressed interest in the role. There was <clears throat> this period in the mid 2000s when I feel Liv Tyler was everywhere. Yeah, I think like, it was like Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it was like post Lord of the Rings. I was like, we got to get her in. Because I know she was in other things. I mean, she's been in show business basically since she was a teenager. But I think Lord of the Rings yeah. was like the first big thing for her. And then everyone was like, cast her as the romantic lead in, yeah. in things. And, and, and she was in Armageddon too. Armageddon. Yeah. yeah, I guess she was in Armageddon before she was in Lord of the Rings. But um, but it, it does feel like Lord of the Rings was when everyone was suddenly like, hey, remember Liv Tyler? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when she whispers throughout this entire movie, She's and very, I have to turn it up to a million and yeah. then a fucking bang or a fire alarm goes off. Yeah. So he really wanted her uh, and obviously <laughs> she accepted. Um, it was her first role actually after she took a slight break from acting following the birth of her son. Um, and she's talked about she took the role because she really liked Bertino's writing style and that everything wasn't spelled out for the viewer in the film, but a lot was implied. Mm -hmm. Um which I think is one of the things I really like about this movie. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I love that opening where you just have the two of them in the car. Yeah. And she's crying and, you know, they're not really talking to each other. And it takes about, I want to say, like 10 minutes in the movie before you figure out kind of what's been going on. And even then, I, you don't really get the whole, right. the whole story. It takes a while to piece together. Um, but it still works. Mm -hmm. Great. So... So yeah, and then uh, Scott Speedman um, was also cast after uh, reading the scripts, um, being very impressed with the story's decision to let the audience breathe with the characters before the horror begins. Um, kind of like you were just saying, like we spend a good amount of time with these characters, like getting to understand what's going on between them before mm -hmm. something bad happens. Um, then the... Follow uh, the rest of the cast basically um, Gemma Ward, uh, Kip Weeks, and um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on her name. Uh, Laura Margulies, my bad, uh, were all chosen based on their abilities to convey their characters, which are the strangers, in spite of the fact that their faces remain unseen and that they have minimal dialogue. And all three of them read Helter Skelter in preparation for filming. What a what a prep indeed <laughs> here's your homework <laughs> try not to you know get indoctrinated or anything <laughs> right um brian martino was not actually going to direct the strangers initially but after um two years in sort of a limbo state where um justin lynn uh, the director of Fast and the Furious, Tokyo Drift, and Mark Romanchek, the director of One Hour Photo, like came in and out of the project. Universal was like, okay, we're going to move this over to Rogue Pictures, which was one of their subsidiaries. And then Bertino, do you want to just direct? And he was like, okay, sure. Mm -hmm. um, so that finally got things moving. Uh, the Strangers was filmed between October 10th, 2006 and January 2007. 
in the countryside of Florence, North Carolina, mostly shot in chronological order, um, which is fairly unusual for- Speaking of chronological order, just to throw out there, I learned that Mad Max Fury Road was shot chronologically. Was it? With the exception of the sequence in the beginning where he's chased by the war boys that was shot in a soundstage later, but everything else was shot chronologically, which is insane to think about a movie like that being shot yeah. chronologically. It's very unusual for a studio movie to be shot chronologically. It's especially unusual it's for a big budget like yeah. that movie. It's expensive. It's very expensive. So, um, huh. yeah. I can't wait to read that book. It's so good. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so... Yeah, speaking of sound stages, so uh, the interior of the house was a sound stage that was built by the crew um, to evoke that like net, uh, 1970s ranch uh, mm-hmm. style kind of house um, that was very common where Brian got fireplace. Up. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the exterior is a real house in Timminsville, North Carolina, which is near where they shot. Um, and the there's an interview with Bertino and I think like the production designer where they were like, we were floored that we found a like a house that was as isolated as we wanted it to be that had a long driveway that was one level, like, you know. Somebody living there who was just like, the scout <laughs> drives by and is like, do you care if we use the outside of your house yeah. in this movie? In this movie? And they're just like, sure. I just imagine it's like some chill old couple that's like, okay. Oh, you're filming a little movie. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, by the way. And they go to see it and they're like, (laughs) they sell their home immediately. (laughs) Um, The Strangers was edited by Kevin Grudert, who was coming off of Saw 3. During the editing process, he and Brian Bertino made the decision that they would not show the Strangers' faces. Uh, in the original screenplay, and as they originally shot it, the audience does see their faces when they remove their masks before they stab James and Kristen. I think this was the right choice. I think so. I think so. There was a sequence where, like, after the murders, they walked around the house, like, cleaning up parts of the crime, and then um, we saw them put on James and Kristen's clothes before they leave, mm-hmm. um, which is something I never thought about because in that final scene where the where they um where she gets the pamphlets from the Mormon boy? Yeah, they are wearing different clothes. Yeah, I didn't even clock that they were wearing different clothes. I didn't either until I saw that fact, and I'm like, oh yeah, they are dressed differently than. I guess that's why they left it is because like nobody's gonna fucking notice this. <laughs> right, right. So, but yeah, I I agree with you. I think everybody agrees that it's it's the right choice that we never see their faces. Um. And then the score for The Strangers was composed by uh, the duo Tom and Andy, uh, Thomas Hadju and Andy Milburn. And it was distributed by Lakeshore Records and released on May 27th, 2008. It contains 19 tracks. Are they, are one of them, the scary repeat um, when the record's stuck? Ooh, I don't know. I haven't actually listened to the score. I wonder if they include that on there. That would be kind of cool and very creepy. Yeah. Um, so we'll do our roll call, uh, which is a chance where we can both comment on the performance of a particular actor or actress, as well as the character that they are portraying. We will go through in billing order. So we begin with Liv Tyler as Kristen McKee. Yeah. Um, you've commented that she's very soft-spoken in this role. She's soft-spoken <laughs> in everything. It's not this role. Like she just, she has like a breathy voice. 
Mm. And it's in everything. It could be Lord of the Rings. It could be this. It could be the Incredible Hulk. Everything. She she just she's very breathy, and that's fine. Yeah. It's just for this particular movie and the the sound editing and the um, <laughs> the mixing. You know, it wasn't great <laughs> for my speakers. Um, but no, I think she's I think she's very good. I mean, and I think it's very. Um, fun of her to be both you know to have done Armageddon and Lord of the Rings and you know a total freaky horror film and you know a superhero movie like I just think she's a good actress I agree um and it, it's nice to it's always nice when you see performers like jump genres and kind of flex different skills and yeah, in a way, I think she's doing a you know a lot of what she does in other films, which is the breathiness. But that's yeah. kind of something she can't help. Yeah. But in other senses, I, I think Stephen Tyler stole her voice in utero. <laughs> in utero. Um, but I also think she's doing like really interesting, um, like cool choices that you don't always get to see her see. Like Kristen's a very like vulnerable kind mm. of um character as we see her she's a little bit meek obviously like she's having a very rough night personally mm. um whereas like you know you think about Liv Tyler you know Arwen starts off really badass and then kind of has nothing to do yeah or, like her character in Armageddon is like the daughter of this like oil driller so she's all yeah. tough and shit you know like yeah so it's cool to see this side of her yeah um and acting opposite her is Scott Speedman as James Hoyt. I mean, I honestly, I feel like he had a little less to do than she did just because she's kind of our point of view throughout. Um, Which I always forget until I like go back and watch this movie again. Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, like we kind of like remove him for two like major sequences of this movie. Yeah, he's like knocked out or out checking yeah. the car or whatever yeah but i do like him when he's there yeah um, yeah no and i like them together i think they're good like they're believable as a couple and it's believe you know like obviously it's an insane situation but like to have that existing tension and then have that you know have that very normal domestic tension and then all of a sudden this happens it's very yes. nice. and they do yeah. well with that they play well together and Stephen really makes me feel for James with like the rejected proposal and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, So, which they were at a wedding, right? They were at a wedding, yeah. When he he was that asshole, yeah, he's that asshole. He takes her outside. Yeah, he does it very quietly. But I'm just like, what are you gonna tell your friends? We got we we got engaged at your wedding. I definitely thought that, especially like rewatching it for this episode. I was like, come on, dude. (laughs) and like his friend knew about it i guess so like another groomsman because he's like yeah it didn't go as planned yeah it's it's mike who shows up later yeah yeah r.i.p r.i.p yeah um so then we've got uh gemma ward as dollface who is the younger female stranger she's the one who first shows up right and asks yes yes um, and she was, she's a model and an actress and she's been in a number of things. Um, I would, I would say thumbs up, mm-hmm. uh, very creepy, 
Um, her delivery, like that line has become particularly famous and associated with this film, you know, mm -hmm. this camera home. Um, uh, good physicality, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, she's, in a way, she's kind of like the main stranger. Yeah, the one that kind of, the one that I think everyone kind of remembers. Yeah, because, you know, she's the first one we meet because she comes to the door and she sort of has that moment with Kristen in the kitchen. Um, she's the one that delivers uh, the very chilling reason for why they're being attacked at the end of the film. And of course she has the interaction with the Mormon boys at the end. So she's kind of like our focal stranger. Yeah. Um, which I think is an interesting choice to have it be this character who's almost like the daughter figure. Right, especially when you have this, like, you know, Kip Weeks playing this guy who, like, basically is like um, Craig from, is it Last House on the Left? Like, yeah. kind of that feeling of, like, the ringleader of right. the group. Yeah, and, like, that's kind of would be a more traditional route to take and... Yeah, it's interesting. So yeah, so next up on the billing is Kip Weeks as Man in Mask. Um, he has no dialogue in the film. Um, so his performance is all physical, uh, which I would give a thumbs up to. Um, I really like the sort of like, he's like, he does like a quasi hunched thing. Mm -hmm. And he's like wearing clothes that are too big for him. Yeah. So he kind of like plays into that a little bit. Yes, it's almost like a shadowy, like a weird slender like he's like a guy that is too long a guy that is too long yeah yeah and as I we've discussed many times you you know there's horror but like what if there was just a guy that was too long but what if there was just a guy that was too long yeah strangers um, that's what i also think this character has the creepiest mask yeah uh which one for me which, for me what's his best his mask is just like the cloth sack Oh right, he has White the claw sack. With, yeah. And there's he has the mouth cut out and the eye holes. Right. Which it's funny because I feel like that mask also was used, like it, it that in the window was used yeah. a lot for the marketing. Yeah, that was big. Um ugh, yeah. Because it's and it's very like, you know, just that idea of just like a sack, right? Like like Jason's first mask or mm -hmm. like phantom killer in town that dreaded sundown right like yeah. something about that like maybe like you were alluding to something that's a bit too big yeah uncanny valley uncanny valley yeah yeah and then we have laura margulies as pinup girl uh, who is like the mom, <laughs> the mom of the group yeah um she has a couple lines of dialogue not as much as dollface um Oh, she, or maybe she only has the one line I think she only has at the, the very line. end oh no and then she says something right before the murders and then she says something um in the car she says it'll be easier next time yeah yeah something to that yeah Perfect. um I would also give her a thumbs up yeah no I think they all were good and creepy cool cool uh, then we have Glenn Howerton as Mike. Uh, Mike. Many folks know him as Dennis from It's Always Sunny, but here he's Mike. Here he's Mike. He gets <laughs> shot with a shotgun. He sure does. Um, just has the one scene. 
but I would say fine. Yeah. Um, Mary, you know, and I have, oh, sorry. Well, I was going to say just like the sense, and it was funny because as I was watching it this time, like I hadn't seen it for a while. And I was like, oh, right. This is, I remember, I was remembering what happened to Mike. Happen. Yeah. And like the dread. And like, you know, even having not watched it, like you can tell when he's walking in and they're like set up, like obviously you can tell what's going to happen, but it's just right. like, but I do love how they play with that with the man in the mask um, coming up behind him. Right. At, you know, and then yeah, yeah. we're kind of not sure. Um, and that's my one issue, not with Howerton, but with the character. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you turn completely around? You know, there's that moment where he like half turns around because he, he knows something's off mm-hmm. and he feels weird, but he doesn't turn completely around. Nor does he also like call out is anybody home? That was my big Dave thing this time person? watching him come in because he sees the, you know, everything that's going on inside the house and he's just wandering around silently and it's like, announce yourself. Like, yeah. you know, ask where they, you know, like, you know, and I guess, I don't know if his rationale was like maybe the, you know, assailants are still in the house or something, but I'm like, find out where your friends are. Right. Because it's just like, oh, and then you could have been like, it could have been three on three. You would have had better odds. Yeah. You would have had his car. Dumb Mike. Dumb Mike. All right. And then we'll call the cops the second you got there and right? saw the, the, the windshield bash. There. Yeah. And then just immediately be like, um, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, and then the only other uh, members of our cast are Alex Fisher as Mormon boy number one and Peter Clayton Lewis as Mormon boy number two. They were fine. They were funny. They were very stone faced looking around at everything that was going on and like very not immediately screaming. I've always thought that. I was like, this is not how I would react upon discovering such a scene. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. Mormon stoicness. Yeah. <laughs> so um, just a couple of fun things we'll note about the production. Um, uh, Mel, maybe you have to stop shitting on her because <laughs> this Tyler came down with tonsillitis during production. <laughs> Because of all the screaming she had to do. She is breathy and everything. <laughs> I also had my tonsils removed. It's fine. <laughs> um, I just I definitely thought that was a funny note. No, that is pretty funny. Yeah, uh, but she's yeah, she said that this was her most physically and emotionally demanding role. Um, I don't that doesn't, yeah, no, that sounds about right. Yeah. To, she's gotta go through a lot. Yeah. Um Speaking of the masks, uh, we were talking about, you know, um, the cloth sack and all that. Uh, Brian Bertino uh, chose all three masks personally, um, and he wanted them to feel like the killers could have picked them up, you know, just at any old store, sort of like how Michael Myers gets his mask in the original Halloween, right? You know, the uh, Captain Kirk mask. Yeah. Yeah. Liv Tyler actually asked not to see any of the three masks before uh, filming, you know, the scenes in which her character would first see them so that, you know, her reactions could be more genuine and she could be really scared during the shoot. No, that makes sense. Could you imagine, like, you're just told something's going to be out the window? Right, but you don't know what it's going to look like. You don't know what to prep for. That'd be creepy, yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think there was a bit of an air of that idea on set in general, because um, in order to get genuine reactions from Tyler and Scott Speedman, um, Brian Bertino would tell them 
um, where they could expect loud sounds to come from during a scene, but then he would have the noise come from a completely different direction. I always wonder in these things, like how they get such genuine reactions out of actors for stuff like this. Like, you know, I think about that, 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 you know, now very famous jump scare in um, Haunting of Hill House mm. in the second to last season in the, you know, the jump scare in the car. And like, basically they had achieved that by not having a set time when it would happen. They just told the, like they, the actors had their dialogue and they were told to just do it. And at some point, um, uh, what's her face? Um, that actress plays now whose name is escaping me. I, I got you. I'm on you. Something with a P. Um, Why is this escaping me? Anyway, she. Um, Victoria Pedretti. Pedretti, thank you. Victoria Pedretti. He, Mike Flanagan told her to pick when she felt the time was right That's to right. do that. <laughs> so, you know, like I, I you know, I. I have no idea from an actor's like union standpoint, you know, what's <laughs> the kind of thing to do here, but I think it's fun to see the ways in which they have to get genuine reactions out of people yeah. by potentially lying a little bit about um, something that happens in the script or what have you. Yeah. It's always fun to like hear those little things or like how they do that. Yeah. Or... And especially with horror, because people are like, you look like you were really scared, you know, all the time. And like, yeah, oftentimes actors were like, yeah, I was. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that was all the fun production stuff, right? Yeah. Oh, and then the houses that we see in the opening credits um, all resemble famous horror houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, uh, they're nods to the houses from Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and Amityville Horror. Gotcha. So nice and cute. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about the film when it was released? Sure. So it was released in May, twenty or May twentieth, two thousand eight, which discussed earlier. It was not April eleventh. <laughs> um, after twice being delayed, um, originally going to be July and then November two thousand seven. Um, it. Uh, pulled in about 21 million over its opening weekend, which put it in third behind the the movie version of Sex and the City and Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is a movie I remember vividly. That was a a different kind of horror movie. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The worldwide worldwide total gross was 82.4 million against a budget of 9 million. So it was kind of a sleeper hit. Um, Definitely. You know, it definitely had working for it that it was so cheap to make. Yeah. Um, You know, positive reviews uh, talked about the slow burn, um, the kind of like tension and creepiness, uh, which was more present than like just outright gore, um, suspense and terror. Um, and just kind of, you know, the use of sound and uh, creepy delivery of lines. And as we talked about, the very creepy use of a record player at one point. Yeah. Um, negative reviews from the story, unoriginal, nihilistic, uh, <laughs> sadistic, sadistic, under, felt the, the protagonists were underdeveloped and had an air of pretension, which I think is all bullshit. I, I don't agree with that either. I mean, unoriginal story, like it's horror, first of all. 
Like, you know what you're in for. I think the nihilism and sadism in it, like, are on purpose. I think it yes. works to its favor. Mm-hmm. I think the protagonists are fine. I, I like how we only get snippets of who they are and kind of are asked to piece it together ourselves. And I don't understand the air of pretension. Like, what do you want? You just you just trashed this movie and now you're getting mad at this director for like... Being stylistic? Yeah, like I don't... Yeah. I don't That's agree with any of that. Critique to me and I usually like disregard it. And yeah, I agree with you. And... It's not about whether a story or a movie or something is like flat out original. It's all about the delivery. Oh, and I think this was an incredibly original, like thinking about what you said at the beginning, how he wanted to put it in the the point of view of the victims and thinking about what we're going to go into and what, um, you know, influence this stuff. It's like, yeah, like we always hear about what it looked like afterwards when somebody found the bodies and somebody right. pieces it together. Like we have no idea what it looks like or you know what it felt like for people who went through it and there aren't you know obviously thank god we don't and there are good reasons you know we none of us know that feeling but the films about them always kind of put you in the point of view of the killer you know you're not necessarily on their side but you have way more information than the audience does or you as the audience have way more information than the characters do you know in this situation you know we're as in the dark as the 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 victims and we're as devastated at the end with the sort of like why are you doing this and then the answer and I think that's all very like I just totally don't agree with any of these uh negative reviews yeah I'm like this doesn't quite clock um it's since though become a bit of a cult classic people have kind of um I don't know how critics have have done on it I know in 2018 EW did a retrospective where they called it a modern day slasher classic. Um, but beyond that, I know that horror fans in general tend to hold this in pretty high regard as a very scary film and a very well done film. Um, yeah. But to this day, it holds a 48 score on Rotten Tomatoes, which I do not well. agree with. Yeah. <laughs> a 47 on Metacritic, which I also don't agree with. IMDb is a little bit higher at 6.1 and then Letterboxd is three out of five. So uh, my personal rating for this film is a four out of five or an eight Honestly, out of five. Honestly, like there's really not much I would do different about it. Yeah. Like I, I think like, it's more really well done. I agree. I have, I have like two, you know, maybe-ish like writing flaws. We talked about the thing with Mike, like why aren't you calling out? Like mm-hmm. that doesn't quite make sense. And I don't like that he leaves her in the house without a weapon. Right. Um, when he has, like, when he knows he has weapon, like, he pulls out, you know. Yeah. Like, there I are think, things in there. Yeah, I wish that maybe had been gone over a little bit. But other than that, I'm like, what are you bothered about? Like, yeah, <laughs> this movie works. No, I think it's great. I think it's very scary. I think it's very effective. And I honestly think there's a, this is kind of a film where, um, you know, something like The Exorcist, people are okay with calling it good because, like, you know, it's something that can never happen. Um, I guess depending on your faith. But, um, you know, with this, it's like, I think, you know, people specifically talking about the sadism and the nihilism. It's like, why is that a bad thing in this story? Like, it's very purposeful. It, you know, it's making a point without being like didactic or um, on the nose about any of it. And I think it's just people maybe were a little, were so unnerved by it. 
mm-hmm. that you know this is just the way it it manifested i agree and i think stylistically the nihilism is what drives the terror mm-hmm. um you know like they can't win at any time like yeah. basically like they they have no way to like they never get the upper hand on the strangers yeah and the strangers can finish this at any time they want but they choose to keep terrorizing them right and that's like i think a huge part of why this is so scary this cat and mouse situation where the cat like has already won essentially it's just a matter of when they're going to claim their prize yeah which is super nihilistic but it works yeah, there's truly nothing I dislike about this movie. If there's anything besides like the stuff we've mentioned, I'm like, you're a little too obvious with that narration in the beginning and the Texas Chainsaw homage, but I don't even hate that. So I don't either because I, it just, it's, it creeps me out. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, and, and that's another good point. We have that, right? So we know that things are not going to go well. Yeah. Um, I'd also just uh, say before we move on to our next segment I love how this movie plays um, with space to mm-hmm. build tension um, because I think there's a lot of moments where like um, we're expecting the strangers to appear in a certain like area or part of the screen and then they don't you versus- and Liv Tyler both apparently yeah right <laughs> And then like versus when and where they actually appear, I think is really clever. And I think it ties into that thing that Bertino wanted to do, which was put us in, you know, the world of the victims as they were experiencing this that was going on with them. So like, we're constantly like looking here and looking there, like there's just a good like training of the viewer of like how to work with space in this movie. And then like we get undercut at the same time, which I think is cool. Um, to that end, I think going into, uh, our one good scare, um, question that we like to take a moment on, which is what do we each think is the most frightening moment of this film? For me, it has always been, um, the moment where she is standing like kind of near the kitchen and she lights the cigarette. Mm-hmm. James is out. Mm-hmm. It's silent. And the man in the mask comes out from the hallway and just stands there and looks at her. Yeah, She does not know he's there. It's the first time we realize this is really serious because he's in the house Yeah, and he just stands and watches. My biggest thing, and this is a thing that always freaks me out, um, is the window thing where she looks out and he's in the window. And I think I've told this story before about when I was in high school at a friend's house and our one friend who also lived in the neighborhood fully did that to us the one time <laughs> and we each had our own very separate but very in character reactions where I had one friend who fully grabbed like like a book like she went for the butcher knives in the kitchen I was gone you were gone I was like halfway across the house 
And then I had another friend who was like a deer in headlights and definitely would have been the first to go. But I, I can't handle that fishbowl aspect of being mm-hmm. somewhere and the windows are open and it's night. Um, you know, it freaks me out. I grew up kind of in a very suburban um, area, but like my house in particular faced emptiness. Like it faced, you know, fields. Yeah. You know, on either side and a little bit of a woods so it was like very much like you know what it, who, anything can be out there like you know absolutely you know so I I just never I always hated like and that's always my worst fear is like I just imagine sitting like house sitting at my mom's I'm like I'm gonna look out the window there's gonna be a fucking guy standing there like I'm just I'm waiting for it so waiting for it mm-hmm. yeah that's a great moment super scary yeah. Um, I also think like existentially a really terrifying moment is when they finally get the answer about why the strangers are doing this. Yeah. Um, bleak. Such a, very bleak. Yeah. Um, so now we'll try our view from the closet. I was um, thinking about this. <laughs> um, which listeners, as you know, is how can we view this film from an LGBTQ plus lens? And sometimes this is easier than others. So Uh I've got got two equally insane possibilities. One, you know, woman rejecting a proposal, always like, okay, is there something else going on there? Sure. So number two is, you know, it doesn't super work because like their attackers seem to be like mother, father, child. But I was like, you know, with the masks and like the weird, you know, sort of, you know, like elongated features and makeup and the masks and just the different, you know, I was like, is there some sort of way to read this as kind of like a, a queer destruction of, <laughs> of heteronormative nuclear domesticity? <laughs> right okay yeah yeah because it is a nuclear family so to speak that's yeah. perpetuating this violence yeah so i don't know but that's the best i have i like it because i was like oh my god i've got like nothing i was like maybe the mormon boys are repressed like yeah <laughs> they hold hands when they're yeah on the they're walking their bikes up the road yeah. which having grown up in um you know, an area rife with Mormons for a while. I have to say, they're quite young to be doing their, like, mission trip shit, so, uh, yeah, I think that was a little, but, you know, Maybe whatever. stretched because they wanted it to be, like, children. Yeah. Yeah. But, um. All right, well, we did our yeah. best with that. Yeah, that's what we got. All right, so we'll quickly do Legacy, Legacy, what is a legacy of this movie, um, which is the impact of the film overall, um, and, uh, so The Strangers was released on uh, DVD and Blu-ray on October 1st, 2008, uh, with the rated and unrated versions of the film. The unrated is two minutes longer uh, and included two bonus features, some deleted scenes and a making of featurette. Then a two-disc collector's edition Blu-ray was released by Scream Factory for the film's 10th anniversary uh, in 2018, which added a 2K video transfer and some new and archival interviews with the cast and crew. Um, I have the DVD version. I would like to get that 
collector's edition. That fancy sounds cool. Yeah, the fancy version. And then a sequel, The Strangers Part Two, was confirmed uh, two months after the film was released in August 2008. Brian Bertino was going to co-write the screenplay alongside Ben Katai. It was scheduled to start production in 2009. Uh, Laurent Bryan and Marcel uh, Londoner were considered to direct before Johannes Roberts was hired. There were several delays over the next uh, good number of years until filming finally began in 2017 and the resulting film, The Strangers Pray at Night was released on March 9th, 2018. Hilarious. Um, have you seen the sequel? I have not. No, actually, have I? No, I don't think so. It's okay. I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'd watch it and I'd be like, oh, I have seen this, but. They're like, it's a family. Um, that could be any horror movie. <laughs> Gina Hendricks is the mom. Um, oh. They. They're, they end up in a trailer park that's like closed for the season. Like it's just closed for the summer and the strangers are there. Gotcha. Um, same strangers? The same ones, yeah, the Got same it. three. And there's like, um, the, like the playground is a big set piece and like the community swimming pool is like another yeah, I one. I guess I didn't see this. Yeah. It's not bad. It definitely does not carry the same weight and dread of the original, but it's okay. Um, if folks are interested. So are we ready to move into part two of our main discussion, Ms. Mel? I think so. All right. So what's that going to be again? <laughs> Scarier than fiction. <laughs> um, now we're going to get dark and talk about like, where did this all come from, right? The movie totes itself as being inspired by true events, which is different than based on true events because mm. um, it does not come from one particular story. And as we mentioned, uh, Brian Bertino himself cited some childhood break-ins in his neighborhood and uh, the Manson family murders. The other big one we're gonna talk about is comparisons people have made to the Keddie Cabin murders. Yeah. Um, so, Ms. Mel, do you want to get us started on the scarier than fiction? Sure. So we talked about this briefly, I think, in an, it was one of our slasher episodes uh, previously. It might have been a Friday the 13th. Uh, but the concept of stranger danger, which every millennial uh, will be uh, familiar with, uh, because it goes back to 1981, which is basically when millennials started being born. Yep. Um, it's, it's basically where we trace it back to, which two events happened at that time. One was definitely more um, uh, influential on the concept of stranger danger than the other, but it is interesting that they happened the same year. So um, <clears throat> the sort of famous case that, that kicked off um, you know, the whole stranger danger fiasco was the abduction and subsequent murder of Adam Walsh, who was a six-year-old boy, actually, you know, pretty sad, um, who uh, was with his mom at a Sears department store. Um, she went off to do something, get something, and he was hanging out with a couple other boys, I think like playing games or something. And so he in, was at the arcade, right? Yeah, in, in another section. An altercation broke out between the kids and the security guard kicked them all out. <clears throat> so 
the security guard is, I guess, the last person to kind of, you know, verify seeing Adam um, because at some point after this, between then and when his mother gets done doing what she's doing, Adam disappears. Um, you know, she comes back, he's not there, he's not outside with the other boys who have been kicked out. He's nowhere to be found. Um, there was some talk in the beginning that like it might have been his dad who had taken him because his parents are going through a separation. Um, <clears throat> and as I'll, you know, I mentioned towards the end of this, most child abduction cases are that exact thing. Um, um, you know, stranger danger is a little, right? Yeah, yeah, so 99% are, are a family member. Stranger Danger is a little overstated yeah. just because there was so much focus on this one like freak incident. But yeah, I was missing. Somebody has clearly taken him or something has happened because two weeks go by and you know there's no trace of him. Um and this Sears was in a somewhere in, in Florida, I believe. Yeah. Um so two weeks later, um, about a hundred miles, I think, from where he was last reported taken, maybe not quite a hundred, but a fair amount of distance, um, somebody reports having found Adam's remains, um, only his, his severed head um, in a ditch somewhere along the road i don't believe i believe his body was never you know the rest of him was never recovered i don't think so yeah so they find this they report to the police obviously it's no longer a missing person's case um basically the person who who confessed to it and you know most people believed in it although some people have put out there like Jeffrey Dahmer and Henry Lee Lucas, two serial killers, were both active at this time and, and could have been responsible. But um, fellow serial killer uh, Otis Toole, uh, um, you know, confessed to it. And you know, at this point in time, the like the investigation has been closed. Um, they're pretty convinced that he was the one who did it. Um, even though there was, he was kind of like giving conflicting reports about things. It was a little wishy-washy, but yeah, it seemed like, you know, it was probably him. As a result of this, um, parents across the United States like freaked the fuck out, um, understandably, but maybe a little outsizedly. Um, the, ex the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children becomes a thing in 1984. The Code Adam Program for Reporting Missing Children and the Animal Child Protection and Safety Act, all these things happen. And it's not even just right after this, like even Obama did something that had to, yeah. had to do with this. Um, so it was like a big deal for a lot of people. And that's kind of, you know, like the beginning of stranger danger of, you know, don't get in cars with strangers. Don't take candy from strangers. All these other things. Even not though, to mention, well, yeah. I was going to say not to mention Adam's father, John, going on to uh, do America's Most Wanted. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And hunt down, you know. Yeah. These terrible people who commit stranger on stranger violence. Right. Um, which is an interesting thing, stranger on stranger violence. So that's kind of where the, so that, that, that leads us to our second thing. Yeah. And will lead us a little bit to our third thing, although the, what you're going to talk about is a little bit um, very specific. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, just to, for a note, as we said, 99% of abducted children are taken by somebody the child knows already. Um, it's usually some sort of domestic dispute. Right. Um, where burglaries and home invasions are concerned, about 2.5 million of them happen every year. One million of which happen while a homeowner or somebody is present in the house. Wow. Um, but 60% of those are perpetrated by somebody who knows the person they are wow. breaking into. So that still is 40% of 2.5 million where right. it seems to be some form of stranger on stranger crime. But um, That's crazy. And that's yeah. crazy that a million where someone is in the home. Yeah. 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 So creepy shit very but the other thing and this actually happened before the adam walsh thing but the adam walsh thing is more remembered but the other thing that happened in 1981 that this bears a striking resemblance to is the Ketty cabin murders yeah so i think at this point a fair amount of people probably you know, this has been talked about on different, like, you know, like BuzzFeed Unsolved did an episode on it. Um, oh, did they? They did. Um, I'm sure different sort of, like, the TikTokers who do, like, creepy stories have done it, but. You know, like, my favorite murders covered it, and right. last podcast on the left. Right. So we'll be, we'll be quick about it, but. Um, it's very creepy. It is very creepy. So the Kenny Cabot murders um, take place in April, on April, the night of April 11th into like the morning of April 12th, 1981, um, in the town of Ketty, which is kind of this like little resort town in the Sierra Nevadas in California, because Sue Sharp and her five children um, move out to California from the East Coast because she's in the middle of like a pretty messy separation and divorce from her abusive husband they were staying with her brother i believe for a while before moving to rent one of these cabins specifically cabin number 28 in the town of ketty um where you know they were just you know living until finding a home finding a more permanent situation mm -hmm. so on the night of april 11th um sue and four of the children um and so that would be, so she had five children, which were Tina, John, Rick, Greg, and then Sheila, the older, is that, am I remembering that right? That's the oldest child. Yeah, right? that's the oldest, yeah. So those are her, her kids. Sheila was not home. Sheila ended up staying with a friend that night. Um, but Tina, John, <laughs> yeah. Could you, this, I think about this shit all the time. Yeah. <laughs> So Sheila's not home when this happens, but Tina, John, Rick, and Greg are, as well as John, his his friend Dana. John is a teenager. Tina is about 12 years old, I think. And then Rick and Greg are both pretty young children. So John and Dana are about 15 or 16. And then another family friend, Justin, who's a friend of the two younger boys, is also staying over. So I believe he was pretty young. Mm -hmm. So they're all staying on the property that night, um, you know, Next morning comes Sheila, the oldest daughter. She's about 16 or 17, I think she's coming home. Um, and she finds in the home that the phone cord has been disconnected. Um, the drapes of the home have been like drawn closed and Sue, John and Dana are quite evidently dead um, in the main part of the, the cabin. Um, 
tied up with medical tape and um, like power cords and that sort of thing. Um, the younger kids, Rick, Greg, and Justin, are unharmed in another room, and Tina is nowhere to be found. Um, yeah, so she goes to get help, like, immediately. A neighbor comes in to get the boys, who are still alive, out pretty quickly. Um, they realize that uh, there's a, a steak knife. I actually don't think the hammer... So they, one of the murder weapons was a hammer. They don't find right. it on the scene, mm-hmm. um, but they do find a steak knife that has very clearly been used to do murder because it is covered in blood and it's bent at a 30 degree angle um, from the stabbing. Um, so, you know, they call the police, the police, the coroner, everyone shows up. They determine that three uh, people in the living room have died uh, as a result of stab wounds, blunt force trauma to the head from what they believe to be a hammer, uh, strangulation, and at least Sue had wounds from a BB gun as well that was shot at her. Um, no one really reported anything weird. A couple neighbors around like 1.15 in the morning said they heard what they thought was muffled screaming. Um, but other than that, nobody, you know, said they heard anything, the house did not have any signs of forced entry. Um, It seems like they just walked right in. It's so wild that no one reported hearing anything because I always think like, you know, like it was a cabin or whatever. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've seen some pictures of where it occurred and it's like, you know, kind of isolated, but like Mm -hmm. there were neighbors. So it's like, you would think sound would travel well. Right. You would think that such violent acts would create a lot of noise but you know so if i thought i heard muffled screaming i don't know i think i i don't know maybe you maybe it's a different time you don't think about these things or maybe like you just don't want to be that person who calls the police for nothing yeah right or maybe like i don't know maybe you hear muffled screaming and you're like oh is that like is that sexy sounds or is that that bad sounds yeah like yeah so whoever, whichever neighbor heard that, I guess, didn't hear enough of it to, to sort of do anything about it. Yeah. Um, Justin, the, the friend, the younger friend who was staying, was able to provide a little bit of an eyewitness account. Um, although, like, you know, he, I think he was just so traumatized, he sort of oscillated between this was a memory versus like he thought he had dreams of the like he thought it was all a dream and different things but um Mm. basically what they were able to put together from what he said is that he got woken up at some point in the night by the sounds of argument um and came out into the living room to see two men and sue in the living room like yelling at each other and then don don john and dana the two older boys appear they get in an argument as well with the men eventually it escalates into a physical fight between the two teenage boys and the you know grown men at this point tina comes into the room she's hearing noises um and one of the men takes her and runs out the back door of the cabin um and after this Justin and the two younger boys are put into one of the bedrooms and the door is closed, you know, and that's all he knows. And for over three years, Tina is considered a missing person because they have no sign of her whatsoever. They don't know what happened to her until, um, I think it's like three years and 11 days to the day, um, 
a portion of what turns out to be her skull and uh, some of her clothes are found a hundred miles from Ketty by um, somebody who's out foraging or something. Crazy. Yeah. But that's all they ever find of her? Yeah. Wow. So locals were very freaked out by this. You know, the, the tape and the, the tying up, they thought it seemed kind of ritualistic, probably, you know, evoking some, you know, of the stuff that you're going to talk about in a bit uh, with the, right. you know, the Manson murders. Um, they thought maybe it had something to do with drug trafficking or organized crime. The investigators kind of really disputed this. Um, you know, not that I think they had any leads, but they didn't think it had anything to do with any sort of like satanic panic or drug related stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but there are two main suspects um, who I don't believe were ever, I don't know if they were charged and never convicted <clears throat> or they were just never charged, but it's Martin Smart and his friend, John Boobity. Um, Martin Smart was a neighbor of the Sharps um, and the father of one of the non-killed victims, um, ah. Justin Smart, um, I believe. Um, according to reports, his wife, Marilyn, uh, previous to this had like confided in Sue that her husband was abusive, um, possibly as a result from, he was diagnosed with PTSD from serving in Vietnam. He actually went to a treatment center for it for a while where he met John Bobdy. And they kind of formed a friendship and he afterwards invited Bubidi to live with them. Bubidi was a convicted felon. Um, he had robbery and home evasion on his record and associations with the Chicago mafia. So, you know. So people, that raised some eyebrows. Yeah. Um, so the night that it happened, Marilyn and Martin and John had been out um, at a local bar and, Mar and Marilyn left around 11 and left the two of them at the bar and she went home to go to bed. Um, and then she mentions waking up at 2 a.m. briefly and she sees the pair of them at, down at the wood fire stove burning something. Not really sure what's going on there, goes back to bed. Um, but the day after the murders, Smart traveled to Reno, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, Nevada, yeah. Yeah. Reno, Las Vegas. We're in Nevada, near Las Vegas, but not the same thing, um, where he supposedly wrote his wife an actual confessional letter. Um, oh. This isn't, you know, the, the, the transcript of the letter is out there, but it was never entered into evidence for some reason. Um, yeah, he basically said something. It was basically to the effect of like, you know, I love you. Look at what I've done for you. I've taken four lives, you know, yada, yada, that sort of a little bit cryptic, but not mm. super he cryptic. Like specifically say I killed the shark. No, he's just like, yeah. look at what I've done for you. I, you know, I, I did this thing. This thing, yeah. Um, so for whatever reason, it never gets entered into evidence. A lot of people felt that this was kind of a bubbled investigation. Um, but sure. you know, and later one of Martin, one, one of Smart's therapists, um, said he can confess to have killing. The two women but not the boys um and then mm -hmm. claimed that um they they took tina and later killed her because she was old enough and had seen them and could identify them which you know makes sense if she knew them 
if she um, knew that. as their neighbors. But regardless, John Bovedi died in 1988 and Smart died in 2000. Um, a wrinkle in this is that in 2018, a, the Plumas County, Plumas County detective, Mike Gamberg, reported they obtained DNA, DNA evidence from the crime scene that did match a living suspect. So. Oh, shit. Yeah, nothing has since come of that. Um, so maybe they're gathering evidence to make an arrest or? Yeah, yeah don't know. But that, that was in 2018, so who knows? Um, the house was turned, torn down in 2004, so. I do remember hearing about that, that they they tore it down. Yeah. Because um, I think there was a lot of like, you know, people coming to see kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it was a bit grim. Yes. So, and then the only other thing that I always think of when I think of crap like this is the Bliska Axe murders, which, ah, yeah. <laughs> you know, famously, whoever did it, unsolved case, hid in the house for quite some time until the family went to sleep before waking up and, you know, bludgeoning them all to death with an axe. Um, you know, some of the suspects were people that the family knew, but it was largely believed to be either a traveling reverend who um, had just happened to be in town that night uh, or some sort of just transient person, a worker, somebody who right. wasn't part of the community. Right. Um, if folks are interested in more of that story, uh, we kind of have a little two-parter about that actually. Mm -hmm. uh, in our fourth Booze and Booze episode, we watched the 2016 film, The Axe Murders of Velisca. And then terrible. It's very bad. And in the subsequent uh, real episode, episode 33, we covered the real case of the Velisca Axe murders, um, going into good detail, I think, about yeah. what Miss Mel just laid out for us. So check that out if you're interested. Yeah. So the other thing that I think as mentioned at the beginning, you know, a big thing for the for this film for Bertino was what happened with Sharon Tate and company uh, yeah. with the Manson murders. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as we mentioned, he directly referenced, you know, that he had read Helter Skelter and he was thinking about um, the Tate LaBianca murders and what was going through their minds during the nights of the attacks. And so, We'll just talk a little bit about that right now. Um, obviously, uh, there are so many sources uh, people could go to for this story and this information. It's so huge that everybody knows about it, even if you don't know about it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think what I'm going to do uh, using the excellent resource over at murderpedia.org um, is give us the highlights version with of course the caveat that, you know, there's so much to this story and mm -hmm. we can't cover everything, but we're gonna right. do it. Yeah. So um, I guess just, we'll start with Manson himself. Mm -hmm. um, so Charles Mills Manson, <laughs> was born on uh, November 12th, 1934 to um, an unmarried 16 year old uh, named Kathleen Maddox in Cincinnati, Ohio. So now 
we get into what most people are familiar with um, in regards to the story of Charles Manson. Uh, once he's released, um, he requests for and asks for permission to move to San Francisco, uh, where he finds an apartment in Berkeley um, and meets up with a bank robber by the name of Alvin Karpis, um, who teaches him how to play guitar. They sort of become like buddies, roommates type situation. They get by on panhandling sort of thing. Um, and this is when Manson gets introduced to Mary Brunner, uh, who's a 23 year old graduate of the University of Wisconsin. Um, and she works at the library at UC Berkeley and uh, they move in together and start bringing a lot of other women uh, to hang out with them and eventually live with them as well. And eventually um, there are 18 women living with Brunner and Charles in this apartment. And so this is the beginning of what we know as the Manson family. So Charles Manson establishes himself as this guru type figure in the San Francisco neighborhood of Hyde Ashbury um, during the summer of love, 1967. Um, this was sort of like the nexus of the hippie movement. Uh, he starts like patenting this version of philosophy that's like a little bit of Scientology and a little bit of his own like weird crap. Um, <clears throat> and the family is made up of uh, mostly other women. Um, and by the end of the summer, uh, Manson and like sort of like a core group of the most enthusiastic um, people in this circle, they all get on this old school bus that they had like refashioned to be like a total like hippie caravan um, and just start like traveling around um, the Pacific Northwest. You know, they go up to Washington, they come back down into LA, they go to Mexico for a bit. Um, they end up in Topanga Canyon, Venice, that sort of thing. They're going all over. Eventually, um, all of this culminates in the murders, uh, the original murders that set in motion um, everything that happens from spring 68 onward. Um, and this is where, according to some people, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys uh, actually picked up um, two female members of the Manson family while they were hitchhiking and brought them to his house in the Palisades uh, for a while. And then returning home in the early hours of the morning after a recording session, uh, Wilson's greeted in the driveway of his house by Charles Manson. Um, and he's very uncomfortable and he asks um, Manson if he intends to hurt him. And Manson tells him he has no such intent um, and weirdly starts kissing his feet. Yep. <laughs> Unacceptable. Uh, so then um, when Wilson uh, goes inside the house, his house, he discovers that there's a bunch of strangers in there, most of whom are women. Um, and over the next several months, as like, you know, Charles Manson and his family just sort of like hang out there, more and more people start coming to the house, more and more family members start making them a part of uh, Wilson's life basically in his household. And, you know, he's paying for them to stay there essentially and, you know, provide food for them. And there's all this like medical treatment he pays for and it's all very weird. And, um, you know, he had like a music relationship with Manson because Manson was like, 
really into music and thought he was going to be this huge singer, blah, blah, blah. Wilson ends up paying for studio time for Manson and starts introducing him to other people in the entertainment business, including Terry Melchior and Greg Jacobson um, and uh, Rudy Altoboli, who owned a house that he was getting ready to rent to the actress Sharon Tate and her husband, Roman Polanski. Um, everyone is sort of like either taken with Charles Manson and his like weird artist philosophy vibe or put off by him. So at this point, Wilson is kind of like, all right, I've done a lot for you. Now it's time to get out of my house. So Manson and his family established their base at um, Spawn's Movie Ranch, not far outside of Topanga Canyon in August of 1968. Um, they got a tip uh, that the property, um, I guess, would be available or easy to overrun, you know, that after they got pushed out of Wilson's house. Uh, the Spawn Ranch was a big television and movie set for um, like Westerns in the golden age of Hollywood. But by the 60s, it had been like abandoned and run down and uh, it functioned mostly as like a horseback riding camp sort of thing. Um, so the Manson family moves in and they start this whole sort of like hippie sustainable community thing that they've got going on. Um, they're working the grounds and this and that. Manson orders, um, this is when Manson starts ordering uh, the family's women, including Lynette Squeaky Fromm, um, perhaps the most famous female member of the family to start having sex um, with the owner of Spawn Ranch, George Spawn, who at this point is 80 years old and blind. Um, and it's believed this was like to keep him compliant or you know, make sure he didn't blab about the weird goings on that were happening at the ranch. Um, the family does live there for free. Uh, and <clears throat> in the early days of November of 68, um, Manson starts sort of spouting uh, his new philosophy or the new version of his philosophy. Um, which comes to be known as Helter Skelter, which is all about um, the soul being connected to part of the infinite whole of the universe. Uh, this is when he really gets into his whole idea that the racial tension between black and white uh, people in America was reaching a boiling point and that um, blacks would soon rise up in rebellion all across the major cities of America. He cites Martin Luther King's assassination as um, what would be the trigger of this uprising against um, the whites of the nation. Um, on New Year's Eve, 1968, he has this huge bonfire lit in the middle of Spawn Ranch and he gives this big diatribe about all the social turmoil um, and he connects it to the Beatles and the White Album and says that there's hidden messages in their music and that they've also been um, warning about this. And that in fact, that album is directed at the Manson family itself because oh a select group of people have been chosen and instructed to preserve the worthy from the impending disaster. It is such a classic, high, you know, high control group 
cult conspiracy like every single one of them is always like we we are the only ones mm -hmm. with the secret because it's the idea of feeling special right yeah you know which that's how you draw people into a cult like vulnerable people who are looking for identity who are looking for a reason to feel special yeah, yeah. so you know so in the early days of 1969, um, he starts assigning family members to monitor the supposed tension throughout LA um, in various different neighborhoods. Um, he, they end up acquiring a home in Canoga Park, which is not far from the Spawn Ranch. Um, and you know, he describes this as the place where they could be submerged beneath the awareness of the outside world. And as such, he ended up calling it the Yellow Submarine because um, the house was yellow. Um, and it's there that he starts preparing the family members for the impending apocalypse, uh, which he terms Helter Skelter after the song of the same name. Um, and in February is when uh, things get a bit more solidified and it's clear that like, they're gonna do something. Um, violence to fight back. It's just a matter of what exactly that's going to be and when. Um, Manson wants to record an album whose songs, like the Beatles, will trigger the chaos or send messages to the other worthy out there. Um, he says they need to retaliate against the vicious murder of white people by Black people. Um, and that it's up to them to not only start the race war, but to make sure they have the upper hand. So on March 23rd, 1969, Manson um, enters uninvited uh, the home at uh, 150 Cielo Drive, um, which he knew was the residence of, um, uh, or was the property rather of Rudy Altabelli. Um, and uh, as of that, month, uh, Sharon Tate and her husband, Roman Polanski, were now the tenants of that property. While there, he met uh, Sheru Katami, uh, who was a photographer and a good friend of Sharon Tate's. Um, he was there to do a photo shoot um, of her before she left for Rome the next day. Um, and uh, Hatami had seen, you know, Manson approaching the home and kind of was like, hey, what are you doing here? What do you want? Manson told him he was looking for someone. Uh, he gave a name that Hatami didn't recognize um, and clarified that he was at the Polanski residence um, and said, oh, you know, maybe you try the back alley. Like maybe you're, you're, you need the guest house, which was behind the main house. Um, and then he kind of had a moment after he told them that where he was a bit concerned because he's like, well, this guy's a stranger. Um, and he like kind of went after Manson uh, and he's, um, saw, he saw that Manson was like now behind him. I'm not really clear how this, somehow Manson ended up like in the house when he like walked away from Hatami. I think he like doubled back and then was like actually in the house. And then Hatami found him and was like, yeah, what's up? Um, and then Manson didn't say anything and went back to the guest house. And then a couple of minutes later he left. Uh, but that night, he went back to the property and again went to the guest house um, where he spoke with the property owner, Altabelli, um, 
and asked again for someone who wasn't there anymore. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, Altabelli like clarified, oh yeah, he moved. He's in Florida now. I'm renting to, you know, Roman Polanski, blah, 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 blah. So this was basically like the earliest version of Manson, like casing the house and sort of like keeping it in his mind that, you know, this was going to be a potential spot to incite the race war. But when he actually first tries to do that is on May 18th, 1969, uh, when Terry Milker comes to visit Spawn Ranch to hear Manson and the women sing. Um, and a violent incident goes down um, over money and um, uh, drugs and uh, the questions of uh, who was dealing those drugs. Uh, and eventually um, it comes to light that there was a shooting um, that uh, family members were involved in, a shooting of um, uh, Black Panther, uh, a, no, a reported Black Panther member um, in Los Angeles. And Manson believing um, that uh, the, um, the shooting of this Black Panther member was meant to be the beginning of the race war, but no one quite like paid attention to it enough or like it was missed. And so it was now on the family in order to do something drastic uh, to make sure that the race war began. Which brings us to the events of August 6, 1969, and what would become at, known as the Manson uh, family murders. And so um, on that day, a uh, Manson family member, um, I'm sorry, what was his first name? Don't know. Bosol. Oh, Bobby Bosol, my apologies, um, had just been uh, arrested uh, for the murder of um, uh, an, an acquaintance of the Manson family, Gary Hinman, because um, he had been caught driving Hinman's car. So um, in order to get back at the pigs and start the race were all in one manson told uh several high-ranking members of his family while they were at spawn ranch that uh, now was the time for helter skelter so on august 8th um manson directs uh linda kasabian patricia krenwinkel and susan atkins um, to go to the house that Melchior used to live and totally destroy everyone in it as gruesome as you can. He told the women to do as uh, his second in command, Tex Watson, would instruct them. So um, as we know, the current occupants of the house at that time uh, were Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. Polanski was actually in Italy at the time on a project. Sharon Tate uh, remained behind. She didn't go with him because she was eight months pregnant with their child. Uh, her friend and uh, former boyfriend, Jay Sebring, um, was there. 
uh, Polanski's friend and aspiring screenwriter, Wojciech Frykowski, and Frykowski's girlfriend, Abigail Folger, who was the heiress to the Folger coffee fortune, were also staying at the house at that time. Um, Tate had, uh, had been in, in Europe visiting Polanski, but she returned to the U.S. about three weeks before this point. So when the four members of the Manson family arrive at the entrance to this yellow drive property, Watson um, climbs a telephone pole near the gate and cuts the phone line. Um, this is around midnight going into August 9th of 1969. And then back their car down to the bottom of the hill that led up to Cielo, or led up to the house on Cielo Drive um, where they parked and walked back up to the house. Uh, believing that the gate to the home was electrified or had some sort of alarm on it, they climbed over the, um, the bushes that made the embankment to the right of the property. Um, they were scared slightly by some headlights that came um, their way from further within. And then it's at that point that Tex Watson ordered the women to lie down where he uh, stepped out to the car and ordered the driver, um, an 18-year-old man named Stephen Parent, to stop. And he pointed a 22 caliber revolver at him, um, frightening the youth, uh, you know, who said, don't shoot me. I won't say anything. I didn't see you. Uh, Watson then stabbed him with a knife, um, I believe on his hand. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then shot him four times uh, in the chest and the abdomen. At this point, he ordered his female accomplices to get up and go further up the driveway. Um, Kasabian was sent to search uh, for an open window in the house that they could come in through. When they found one, a screen was cut and they climbed in, um, or Tex climbed in, I'm sorry, where he then removed the screen um, to let um, Atkins and Krenwinkel in through the front door. <clears throat> he, um, he then started whispering into them what the commands would, what their orders would be inside the house, which woke up Frykowski, uh, who was uh, sleeping alone on the living room couch. Watson kicked him in the head. When Frykowski asked him who he was and what he was doing there, Watson replied, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. Atkins then gathered the three other occupants of the house um, and brought them into the living room where they tied up Tate and Sebring by their necks with rope that they had brought with them and slung them, slung the ropes up over a beam. Uh, Sebring's protest, his second of rough treatment um, of the pregnant Tate prompted Tex Watson to shoot him. Folger was then taken uh, briefly back to her bedroom in order to get her purse um, from which she gave the intruder $70. After she handed over the money, Watson uh, stabbed the now groaning Sebring seven times. Frykowski was bound up with, the with towels. Um, he was struggling, so he was stabbed in his legs with a knife uh, by Atkins, who had been his guard. He fought his way to the front door and out onto the porch where Watson um, came after him and struck him over the head with the gun that he had multiple times, stabbed him repeatedly, then shot him twice. Um, during all of this, he ended up breaking the grip to the gun. Uh, Kasabian, who had been on guard outside, then came up because of from the horrifying sounds. Um, and in an effort to stop the massacre, actually, she told Atkins um, that someone was coming, which was a lie. Um, 
it does not look like Atkins believed her. Uh, inside the house, Folger ended up escaping from her captors briefly and fled out the bedroom door to the pool in the back. Um, she was chased to the front lawn by Krenwinkle, who stabbed and um, tackled her down to the ground and was eventually killed by Watson. She was stabbed a total of 28 times. Uh, Frykowski struggled across the lawn as well. Um, and Watson went and murdered him with a final flurry of stabbing. He ended up being stabbed a total of 51 times. Uh, back in the house, Tate, who was uh, the last remaining um, victim, uh, pleaded to be allowed to live long enough to have her baby. She offered herself as a hostage in an attempt to save the life of her unborn child, uh, that, but the killers did not listen. And either Atkins, Watson, or both of them then killed Tate by stabbing her 16 times. Uh, she reportedly said, mother, mother, as she was being killed. Um, according to Charles Manchin's directions, which he had told them earlier that day to leave something witchy, um, they took the towel that had um, tied up Frykowski's hands and um, used it to write peg on the house's front door with Sharon Tate's blood. Um, on their way out, Away from Cielo Drive, they changed their clothes and ditched them in the hills along with their weapons. The other half of um, the Manson family murders is the La Bianca murders, which occurred the next night when six family members, Leslie Van Houten, uh, Clem Grogan, and the four from the previous night rode out again on Charles Manson's instructions. Um, who was displeased with the panic or the panic he did not think occurred at Cielo Drive to create more terror. Um, the six of them went out to 3301 Waverly Drive, uh, the home of supermarket executive Lino LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary, um, who owned a dress shop. Uh, this was in Los Feliz in Los Angeles. They uh, ended up, um, entering the house in a very similar fashion as they did on Cielo Drive. Um, uh, they roused Lino LaBianca from the couch where he was sleeping at gunpoint, bound his hands with a leather thong, uh, woke up and um, removed Rosemary LaBianca from her bed. Um, they covered the couple's heads with pillowcases uh, and bound those in places with lamp cords. Um, Manson actually arrived around this time, um, saw them bound, and then like, I guess, pleased with that, he ended up leaving um, uh, with the instructions uh, provided to Leslie Van Houten and Crane Winkle that the couple should be killed. Um, and of course, eventually they were. Um, Lino LaBianca was stabbed with a chrome-plated bayonet um, in his throat and about his chest. Uh, Mrs. LaBianca um, eventually, uh, got free of some of her bonds and, and fight, fought back a little bit, but she was subdued um, again with stabs of the bayonet. Um, when the murders were over, Tex Watson carved war on the exposed abdomen of Mr. LaBianca. Um, a couple of other uh, panic inducing, according to them, phrases were written in blood about the house. Um, including the word rise, uh, the phrase death to pigs, and of course, helter skelter, which was put on the refrigerator door in uh, LaBianca's blood. And one more um, 
writing of the word Peggy on the door. Um, then the group uh, cleaned up slightly and left. And that is the story of the Manson family murders and or the Tate LaBianca murders. Some stuff. Yeah. So obvious, I think, um, parallels and connections and we can see where um, Brian Bertino was influenced in his creation of The Strangers. Yeah. I think what always gets me in particular is um, like the writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a ton of it in The Strangers, but there is like- Yeah, they write killer on the mirror after he- Yeah, yeah. shoots Mike. And there's that one, I think, is it the bathroom window? They pull the curtains back and they've like, they've written hello. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Um, yeah, for me, the creepiest part about, and you know, we don't really see this in The Strangers, but you know, I think it's still the same vibe is um, hearing that they cut the phone line before they, they went in and just that premeditation always really freaks me out. Yeah, that's, that's always an incredibly chilling detail and this are are similar stories yeah Yeah. but but i think like to take power away from the manson family it's so pathetic that like and sad that like they were trying to almost like go above and beyond you know Manson wanted it to be something that scared people and you know like right on the walls and blood it's it's not even like they even like believed it you know it was all like it was all a show you know to ignite this supposed race war it's like yeah no and it's it's very it's interesting because I I don't know if you read the girls um the girl by um shoot what's her name the girls by you're gonna say her name in a minute. oh by emma klein thank you yes i did read that yeah so that obviously is based it's on like a fictionalized version of this um but i always thought that was an interesting sort of take on like um yeah like the, the weird sort of like inner workings of groups like this and how truly like pathetic that you know the they are. I mean, all of them that are like this, you know, it's very much grasping at straws and, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously what ended up happening and what they did was horrible, but like it comes from a place of powerlessness, Um, you know, and this is unfortunately the way that they chose to, you know, exert for themselves some semblance of, of power and, you know, I think that's definitely, um, you know, who knows what's going on with the strangers and strangers, but, right. you know, I think that is part of it. It's like, you know, whatever's, you know, like the violence is the way that, that people tend to resort to, to, you know, feel powerful, you know, in some cases it's a bully, in other cases it's this. Yep. So. Yeah, this are the, yeah, this is like, you know, when the bully gets radicalized, basically. Yes. You know, yeah, it's very pathetic and it's very sad that 
you know, such terrible things happen for, for what, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, some good readings, which brings us basically into the final uh, portion of our episode, which is analysis, um, contextualizing the strangers um, in relation to its real life uh, inspirations or just as a film. Um, you were hitting on that just now a little bit. Um, I, uh, you know, saw doing research for this episode that um, there was a lot of um, writing and readings of the film as being um, a commentary or a reflection of post 9-11 um, states of the country. Uh, Kevin Whitmore, the film scholar um, in particular talks about um, the strangers being very much like a reflection of post 9-11 reckoning of death and violence as being random, the result of being in the wrong place in the wrong time. You know, he writes that an 80s slasher horror engaging in negative behavior such as drinking, doing drugs, or having premarital sex are the forerunners to being killed. Here, death is random and unrelated to one's behavior, exemplified best in the off-quoted chilling line, because you were home, um, which I think is a good reading. Yeah. Uh, Tony Williams uh, goes a bit further on this idea in his book, Hearths of Darkness, The Family in the American Horror Film viewing the 1970s era home in The Strangers as symbolic of the American tradition of random violence without coherent explanation, which first forced its way onto public consciousness in the 70s as a result of high profile stranger on stranger cases like the Zodiac Killer, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, the son of Sam, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then Mike Mayo uh, in his text, The Horror Show Guide, The Ultimate Fright Fest of Movies, views the film as a successor to uh, Michael Haneke's Funny Games um, and an entry in the naturalistic domestic horror subgenre, calling it a, a critique of the perceived safety of rural life versus city life, undermining the perception that pastoral communities are simpler, safer, and crime-free when compared to urban environments. And I think we touched on that a little. Yeah, and that's a good lead into like, you know, <clears throat> and again, I think we talked about this with slasher stuff, but basically, you know, like, you know, initiatives that come out of similar things, you know, just basic different moral panics um, of the like mid-century and onwards where like, you know, the war on drugs becomes a thing and suddenly, you know, there's, you know, really aggressive white flight out of cities into urban or into suburban and rural settings. You know, the, the, the rate of incarceration goes up from 0.2% of the population to 0.8% between 1980 and 2008. So there's like this permanent underclass that's created and this permanent like sort of like, you know, boogeyman of the, you know, the, the inner city danger and the drug dealers and all this stuff and people, you know, all these white people are moving out to like these planned communities and, right you know, like, you know, the homes that they've built in these like developed neighborhoods out in the middle of nowhere and it's a perceived safe, safe space and it's interesting that you know you have James and Kirsten who are like they you know clearly like affluent um you know whites who are being attacked by fellow I mean we don't ever see the faces of the strangers but they're all we can see you know they're, yeah. they're three white people yeah. um you know in this place that is supposed to be like 
this safe um mm -hmm. space away from like the dangers of uh yeah i mean it's literally i think they say it's a vacation home right yeah this family it's a true like getaway yeah. yeah um which is always just you know interesting and speaks for itself in like what you know basically it's trying to say mm -hmm. yeah absolutely awesome yeah well, cool um is there anything we need to add about either the scarier than fiction real life portion or i don't think so the rest of the film anything we want to say that we haven't no i think we covered it all cool well then we're going to close things out with our closing question okay and it's my turn this time mm -hmm. and um i was going to ask you have you ever had a creepy experience while being home alone <sighs> where you thought you know yeah like either with this like a stranger or you freaked yourself out or oh yeah. definitely freaked myself out you know what's <laughs> funny is when this has nothing to do with this but while i'm thinking i'm going to tell you the story of the first when i was first allowed to stay at home alone i wasn't allowed to eat food because my mom was afraid i would like choke <laughs> while she was out and i would get hungry i mean obviously they were never <laughs> gone for like more than an hour at this point but i would get hungry so i would eat crushed ice and like convince myself this was food um, but, um, I'm trying to think, like, obviously there's that story of, like, the friend who, like, you know, fucked around and. Yeah, I guess you kind of. Did that, like, I'm trying to think, I was like, was there, was there anything creepy? Like, there's definitely times when, like, somebody's knocked at the door and I've refused to answer. And, yeah. Um, one time, I don't know what the fuck was happening, um. I was, when I was living in Arizona, I was like going to bed and it was like, so it was like probably like 10 or 11, like it was pretty late at night and I hear these noises and I look outside because my um, room is, was at the front of the house and I'm looking through my blinds and I see these two guys have stopped their car outside our house, gotten out of the car and were like boxing or fighting. <laughs> I don't know if it was like play, like we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, like, you know, train or they were actually had decided like upon a dueling location, <laughs> but they were just- Someone threw down a gauntlet. Yeah, they were just in the middle of the street, like freaking throwing punches at each other. It was really weird. Boggers. Yeah. <laughs> I never got clarity on that. Yeah, I can't. It doesn't sound like you ever will. No. Yeah. What about you? Did you have anything weird? Um, nothing truly or at least that I can remember. Um, but like you were saying, like a couple of times where like someone knocked, oh. you know, um, I remember the one I definitely remember. I was pretty young. Um, my mom was home. She was in the shower. Mm -hmm. My sister and I were downstairs and someone knocked. Um, and I knew enough to know that like, you know, we don't answer the door. Yeah. Like my parents have to answer the door. Um, but they kept knocking and then ringing the doorbell. Um, and I don't know if I like went over and said hello or something at some point or like who's there or something, but like the person ended up saying, hi, hi, Craig and Angela, which is my sister's name. She's like, it's me, it's me, whoever, let me in, let me in. 
And I was just like, I, I remember being like terrified. Mm-hmm. I didn't recognize the voice. I didn't understand how they knew my name. I knew not to open the door to strangers. Yeah. And my mom came down, you know, eventually and opened, and it was, it was, it was a neighbor or like mm-hmm. a somewhat elderly kooky neighbor who, yeah. I don't remember why she was coming over yeah. and it was totally fine. But like that young version of me was very, very scared. Yeah. Okay. No. Yeah. I, it didn't make sense. I didn't know a neighbor was coming over. Why do you know my name? You know, I do. This one wasn't scary so much. It was funny, but um, I was staying at our mutual friend Katie's apartment <laughs> a few years ago, and I was sleeping in the living room. And like at three in the morning, someone started pounding on the front door of her apartment, and no. just pounding and yelling at the front door. So I like got up because I'm like what the hell is going on? And I like got close enough where I could kind of see through the people, but I also know like from the outside, you can see when someone's looking through the people, like it's not foolproof. So I didn't want to get super close. And there was this woman out there who clearly was drunk. It was just the wrong apartment. I don't know what was going on though, but she was just screaming to be let in and like yelling and pounding on the door. And this went on for probably about five minutes before I think she realized she was at the I remember you telling me this now yeah. but it was bizarre that's bizarre yeah yeah but it's like you know yeah and it was probably exactly as you said right she was just really drunk and she had the wrong apartment yeah but I feel like especially for like horror viewers like us you know because when we watch so much and we read so much like in a situation like that it's like she could be faking she could be you know yeah right like Like she could be the bait to yeah there could be someone else out there it's it's like the it's it could be a is Tamara home situation you know yeah nah I'm not opening that door yeah so wow woo I think that's gonna wrap things up yeah yeah cool uh well hopefully y'all enjoyed listening to the scary truths behind the fiction of the strangers uh let us know what you think about this movie um what you think about um the inspirations behind it we definitely want to hear from you miss mel's going to tell you how you can let us yeah. know. You can email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can tweet us at splatterchatter666 minus all the vowels, just the consonants. If that's too difficult, though, uh, just search us and we'll pop right up. Uh, you can send us, I forget what they call them on Tumblr, but a little message or a comment on splatterchatter.tumblr.com. Um, you can DM us on Instagram at splatterchatter666, and you can leave a comment on the blog at splatter-chatter.com. Fantastic. All right. This is going to wrap up episode 97 on The Strangers. Uh, our next episode in May is our next Friday the 13th special, mm-hmm. um, because it is back on the calendar, baby. And this time around, we are going to be covering part nine of the Friday the 13th franchise. Jason goes to hell the final Friday. Was it the final Friday? It was not. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll be getting into all of that next month. So do be on the lookout. Until that time, uh, we want to remind you to keep up the creep. And for now, we will say au revoir, adios, and das.